Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Galatians 3, 10-12 For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. It is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And Paul is here posing one Old Testament passage against another. And how we understand this passage, this section in Galatians, I think is determinative, certainly of our reading of Galatians, but Galatians is a parallel book to Romans. And of course, These two books then make up the heart of our understanding of Christianity. The understanding of salvation that I and maybe most of us were reared on, I think it's the typical Protestant understanding that we've called justification theory, is that all people recognize God and his righteousness by virtue of being born, They experience the incapacity to keep the law, and the inability to keep the law is definitive of both the human problem and the solution of the cross. And this explains the curse of the law. I'm giving you the wrong explanation, but I think is the common explanation. That is, we come to Christ having realized we cannot keep the law, and that only Jesus can fulfill the law's righteous demands. Only he can pay the penalty for transgression. And much of this understanding is drawn from just a few texts, like this one in Galatians, mainly in Romans. And so I today want to picture the human problem in the way I believe that Paul is picturing it, the way that Galatians is picturing it, and a correct reading, an alternative reading, of this curse of the law in Romans and Galatians. Now, as I've argued, this common Protestant understanding, and it's a result of a fusion of the words of who I think is a false teacher, who Paul is giving voice to in 1.18-32 of Romans, and actually scattered throughout the first three or four chapters of the book of Romans. That Paul is engaging in a dialogue with this false teacher and refuting him. And what has happened is we've fused the false teacher and Paul not recognizing who is who. The human predicament, judging from the rest of Romans, uh, it turns out to be much worse than what is described in Romans 1.18-32. In this description, 118-32, people know God and know what they should do. They should keep the law. 
But they do not do it, implying in the description that the law is the instrument of judgment, but also the instrument of escape. But actually in the rest of Romans, Paul describes people who are in bondage. This is 8, 15 to 16. They have been deceived by a lie and are enslaved by a lie. 7, 7 to 15. They are hostile to God. Chapter 8, verse 7. And really this hostility is the best they can do. Because they have minds that are ruled by the flesh. He says in 8, 7. Chapter 5, verse 14 of Romans, he says, death reigns. And of course, both in the literal sense that people die, but also in that life is ordered by the reality of death. In 5.12, he explains that. And so people attempt to engineer reality through the law. I think that's what he's arguing in the first three chapters of Romans. Or as he describes it in chapter 7, that through the flesh they would escape death. Or in Galatians, he actually uses the idea of the elementary principles of the cosmos in chapter 4, verse 3. And I think this is a parallel passage to what is happening in Romans. And through these elementary principles, they imagine they can negotiate death. But of course, through all of these means, whether it's the flesh, the law, the elementary principles... They all prove deadly. And far from the law or these other means offering a potential means of escape, either through law keeping or even through Christ's law keeping, the way that Paul is describing it, the law is deadly in the same way the flesh is deadly. Though people imagine they can defeat death through law or religion, in what in Isaiah, and Paul, this is one of Paul's favorite verses in Isaiah 28, it talks about the covenant with death, that death, though, reneges on the supposed arrangement. That is, like in the Garden of Eden, they thought they were gaining life, and all they gained was death. And so the human arrangement with death, the covenant with death, which Paul sums up in chapter 8, verse 2, as the law of sin and death. It really deals only in death. There's no life in the arrangement. And so though chapter 1, 18 to 32, pictures a universal capacity to recognize God and the law from nature, it turns out, at least according to the rest of Romans, that Paul is not optimistic about people perceiving the problem. We can't even understand what the predicament is, let alone realizing a solution. And so far from some sort of deep anthropological insight on the part of humanity, Paul pictures a deluded humanity, a humanity sold to slavery through a deception, a deadly exchange, as he describes it in chapter 5, that we have all been found in Adam. And he describes this on a corporate level, but then in chapter 7, he describes it individually 
and in the individual human psyche how it is that death reigns. And Paul spends most of the first four chapters of Romans explaining how the perceived solution on the part of the Roman Christians who have been influenced by a false teacher is incorrect. That is, they imagine, or this teacher imagines, that the law is part of the solution. And Paul is saying, no, the law is bound up with the problem. The deception in regard to the law through which death takes hold as the perceived means of escape. That is, people imagine, oh, I can do the law and gain life. This is obscuring the solution. And that's why Paul is writing the book of Romans. That's why he's writing the book of Galatians. That is, God has provided, he's provided a resolution to the human predicament. But because the problem has been misunderstood due in part to these false teachers, the solution is now misunderstood and the gospel is obscured. I think we're in a very similar position to the Romans and the Galatians. And so we need to read these letters again. Paul explains the problem in chapter 7 in light of the solution. We can't grasp the problem apart from Christ. Douglas Campbell explains this, that in chapter 7, it's not simply a psychological portrayal of pre-Christian experience. He says, essentially it supplies a theological analysis of non-Christian ontology. Whether that is present in the non-Christian, as seems obvious to the Christian, or in the Christian, as it seems at least partly to be the case. That is, we all can read, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do. We understand that. We understand what that feels like. But of course, the point is, that's not ideal. Campbell says, it is fundamentally retrospective. That is, when this was happening to Paul or to the I, he did not understand what was happening to him. But now, from the vantage point made through Christ, made available through Christ, it supplies our understanding. Oh, this is why I was afflicted. And so chapter 7, 7 to 25, I believe it's clearly referencing Adam. And Paul does this throughout Romans. It's not Judaism per se that is the problem. Though Paul talks about the law of Moses, it does create the same sort of problem. It's on a continuum with the problem. And the reality of the human predicament may be perceived to revolve around the law. But this perception itself in Paul's description misses how it is that sin has deceived in regard to the law. In other words, to state it in a large way, I believe that Christianity, as we have it in much of Protestantism, in what is called justification theory is implicated in the problem inasmuch as the problem and the solution are thought to be defined by the law that is oh we got a legal problem now we got the legal problem taken care of Paul said oh no it's much worse and much better and so if we go back to Genesis chapter 3 which I think Paul is referencing 
It is not the command, you know, original command from God per se that is problematic. And this is his explanation in chapter 7. But it's due to the lie of sin. Sin deceived me. In Genesis 3, the serpent deceived me. The presumption is that the command is the means of access to life. Paul puts it this way in 7, 10 to 11. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul is not describing what we have in typical Protestantism or in justification theory. Oh, a slowly dawning awareness of the struggle to keep the law and then the recognized inability to do so. He is describing the deception as it occurred in Genesis and which continues to reign in humanity. This is not someone who has a deep cognitive awareness of their sin problem. This person is deceived. They're controlled by the flesh. Seven, five, seven, eight, you know, they're serving the desire of the flesh. He says this again and again. This individual is controlled by death. And so actually chapter seven is providing a detailed account of what he said in chapter five, verse 12 to 21 in which he talks about the reign of death. And here he's talking about how this reign takes hold in each of us. It takes hold corporately, but it takes hold in each of us individually. And so it's not really a matter that no one can keep the law. And this is why they are not justified. Though this is how this verse that we just read in Galatians is usually read. That is, what is the, the question is, what is this curse of the law? Did Paul imagine that as a Pharisee he couldn't keep the law? No, he said, I kept the law perfectly. No problem doing the law. Daniel Boyeran, who is a Jewish scholar, and reading this passage, he says there is a problem not with the doing of the law, but imagining that the doing of the law is sufficient. You know, most Jews are like Paul, the Pharisee. They assume, oh yeah, I can keep the law, that's no problem. And understand, the law provides for failure. The law provides for forgiveness. So the problem is not that it cannot be done. The problem is to imagine that in doing it, that this is the main thing. Or to state it simply, that being Jewish is enough. And so Boyeran says we could rewrite this verse and say, as everyone who precisely by doing it, does not uphold all that is written in the book of the law is under a curse. So he's quoting, referencing Leviticus, but also the verse in Habakkuk, that it's by faith that you will be declared righteous. Everyone who by doing it is not doing it in the way that Habakkuk describes. That is, they imagine that by circumcision, by the physical performance of the law, but actually, if you imagine that, you're not upholding all that is written in the book of the law. That is the curse. Because all that is written implies much more than the doing of it. And this is, of course, Paul's argument in chapter 4. It is that faith precedes the doing of the law. In fact, faith precedes the law. Or as he states it in chapter 3, 27, 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the argument of Romans, that a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. And of course he means Jesus Christ. As he argues in chapter 4, this is an idea though that can be extrapolated from the law. That is, he turns to the law and says, oh, the law says the law is not enough. The law points beyond itself to the faith of Christ. And so it follows from this that those who live by faith are the righteous ones. And this is Paul's argument. They are the justified ones. And then he argues those who live by the law, well, they don't live by faith. That's Paul's argument in Galatians and Romans. Oh, you want to be circumcised? Well, then just go back to worshiping idols because he says it's the same thing. You want to be circumcised? You want to be Jewish? Well, it's just like you're captive to the elementary principles of the cosmos. Same thing. And of course, the verse in Leviticus explains explicitly, he who does them lives by them. And so one who does the commandments lives by them, not by faith. That is, they imagine the law is an end in and of itself. And we know from Habakkuk, and this is Paul's opening quotation in the book of Romans, that the righteous live by faith. He who lives by them does not live by faith and therefore does not fulfill the law. He is not righteous. Boyer says this manner of arguing, and Boyer is himself Jewish. He says this would have been a familiar thing to the rabbis, to the Pharisees. He says Paul is using methods of interpretation that would not surprise any Pharisee, or I suspect, or uh, any rabbi. Though the results he arrives at would shock them to their depths. The law is a curse if the doing of it or the having of it is thought to be adequate. According to Campbell again, the curse's basis is actually life in Christ. A life of freedom, adulthood, inheritance, and the spirit. In comparison with this life, Judaism, under the law, is confined, immature, harsh, and depressed, and hence also cursed. It is the life from which Christians have been purchased. The law does not produce faith, nor resurrection. But Paul's argument is that it's based on resurrection faith. This is what he says in 4.23. And so in short, by acknowledging the crucified and resurrected Christ, and relying on him for deliverance, a deliverance that is already inaugurated, Paul observes that Jewish Christians have automatically displaced the law, or law observance, from a critical saving and transformational role. Now, actually, Paul doesn't care at one level. You Jews want to practice Judaism? That's fine. It doesn't really matter. Because Judaism... That's just a marker, but it's not crucial. And that's the key thing here. But he's saying, if you insist that the Gentiles have to be Jewish, now you're going too far. There is no room for works of law 
even in the anteroom, you know, into the coming into faith. That is, one does not progress through works of the law. Oh, and then I have despair because I can't keep it. And then you come to Jesus. Galatians, like Romans, describes a complete setting aside of the law. This is Galatians 2.15. It could be either Romans or Galatians, because Paul says a very similar thing. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Because transformation comes through the Christ event. Works of the law have been negated, at least in regard to this transformation. Lewis Martin, who is a famous New Testament scholar in regard to Galatians, says that the false teachers, who he says may be the very one or ones who are in Rome, they're arguing Christians need the law, in particular circumcision, so as to curb the desires of the flesh. And we've talked about this. The Jewish understanding was, well, you need to cut off that piece of flesh because that's, it's not simply symbolic, but there's actually the sense that circumcision in some way makes you virtuous. Abraham, in their estimate, would have defeated the desire of the flesh by keeping the law, beginning with circumcision. So Paul's juxtaposition of flesh against spirit especially refers to the foreskin of the penis. Their reliance on the law is literally reliance on this piece of flesh. So when Paul equates the flesh and living according to the flesh and living according to the law, he means this quite literally. This reliance, as depicted in Galatians, is the equivalent of being a slave to the elementary principles of the cosmos. This is what he's going to say in Galatians 3.28. In the ancient world, which Paul is clearly opposing, it is that the origins or the fundamental building blocks of the universe are based on opposed pairs. You know, earth over and against air, water over and against fire. And think here, circumcision over and against uncircumcision. In other words, it's a very similar thing. The problem with the law, the problem with the flesh, and the problem with this present evil age reduced to the singular problem that the elements of the cosmos, quoting Paul there, have been made absolute. They've been made a kind of divine dialectic and have not been understood in relationship to God. Now whatever Paul might mean by these elements, it seems that the law, the flesh, are counted among those things which hold people captive. In other words, the pagans and the Jews and all people are held captive by these elementary principles. I think this same dynamic is at work there in Romans. It's not a matter of the law of the mind gaining control of the law of the flesh, which was a very Greek idea. You know, I just need to exercise the power of my mind and get control of my body. 
But all of this, in Paul's explanation, is part of the law of sin and death. It's a dialectic that we take up within ourselves. It is not the body over and against the spirit that is the problem. But this dialectic, as in pitting of the mind against the body, is definitive of the predicament. And he sees two laws at work, he says. He says, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. The point is not that one of these laws is right and the other wrong. The point is there is a war being waged, that we're married to this war, as he describes in 7, 1 to 3. We're married to the law, and we need to be married to Christ Jesus. And in this marriage to the law, the individual, the I, is the victim. And only Christ can end the struggle. As Martin notes, the antinomies that serve as the building blocks of the universe in Christ have disappeared. This is what Paul describes. For when all of you were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. This is Galatians 3.27. You put on Christ as though he were your clothing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Opposition is done. There is neither slave nor free. That antagonism is finished. There is no more male and female. That identity as a complete identity in itself is undone. Because all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The antinomies no longer define us. The antagonisms no longer are definitive. The elementary principles no longer control us. Those in Christ have suffered the loss of the cosmos. This is the way Paul talks. That is, they've entered a different world. A new cosmic order found in Christ. The cosmic order in which law versus no law. Circumcision versus circumcision. Flesh versus spirit is broken open by Christ. This is Galatians 6, 14 to 15. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the cosmos has been crucified to me and I to the cosmos. It's a cosmic shift. It's a new creation. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. But a new creation. As Paul explains in chapter 8, yes, there is an incapacity, but it is not the incapacity of the will or attempting to keep the law and finding we're not able. That's not the problem. Rather, there is an incapacity to recognize God due to an innate hostility in the fleshly mind. This fleshly mind does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Chapter 8, 8 of Romans. This hostility arises in conjunction with the flesh and the law. It is not a matter of separating the law from the flesh, but it is a matter of doing away with the law as the basis of understanding the problem. Sin. That's not the basis. Nor is it the basis for understanding the solution. Salvation. 
And so in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul sets aside this discussion about the law, you know, the engagement with the false teacher, and he provides a very different picture of the problem in 5 to 8, and it revolves around life and death. He says in 5.17, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. This picture's life. Certainly it's the future age, the age to come, but it also references a different life now. He says in 6.4, people are baptized so that they might walk in newness of life. In the new life, the oppressive measure of the law has been set aside. We are joined to Christ. We're in a, he uses the language of marriage. Rather than the law serving to define salvation, with its being set aside, the reign of death has ended. This is what he says in 5.21. Salvation, it is not simply a satisfaction of the law. Salvation is rescue from death and the reign or rule of death through sin, 518. This simple observation, I think, changes up our understanding of God. It changes up our understanding of the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and actually the very nature of our experience. And so in contrast with justification theory, much of Protestantism. The primary human problem is not God's anger due to the transgression of the law. Our problem is we are in captivity. We have been deceived and hostility arises through sin and death. This is both chapter 5, chapter 8. They mention this inherent hostility to God. The sons and daughters of Adam in 5.10 and 8.5 are fundamentally God's enemies, as the sinful mind is hostile to God. Romans 7 pictures the inner workings of this hostility, and it certainly includes the law, but not as a point of recognition and enlightenment, but as the place where deception, desire, and death enter in. And so in 7.7 following, the law which gives rise to forbidden desire in spite of the life that it seemed to offer and due to the deception of sin it produces death for the eye what eye? the universal eye it produces a life of death described as an agonistic struggle in which the eye is split against itself and sin, then, is in control. And Paul just sums this up as, in 724, the body of death. Or the law of sin and death, in 8.2. The law of sin and death is the structuring principle of the subject. In which life is controlled by an orientation to death. A primordial deception has taken hold. A destructive death drive. So in conclusion, the problem, it's much more tragic, it's much more all-encompassing than pictured in justification theory. But so too, the good news is that the solution is more all-encompassing. It's universal, it's unconditional. In chapter 5, verse 10, 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here, there is no angry deity punishing legal transgression by taking out wrath on Christ. This salvation speaks of a loving God transforming the cosmos and the very makeup of the human psyche, the human subject. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. This salvation is transformational, a passage from death into life, a passage from law, elementary principles, into life through the Son and the Spirit. The old order of bondage and enslavement to law and flesh has been defeated in this new age which is inaugurated in Christ. This is an apocalyptic intervention into a bondage. This bondage, there is no right understanding of God. That's impossible. But with deliverance, with rescue, with resurrection, with new creation, all which are inaugurated by God through Christ. This alone then is salvation, but it is also the only avenue to a right understanding of who God is and who we are. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.